Hi, I'm Miguel Garcia, creator and host of the Sports as a Weapon podcast, a Chicano sports podcast on the entanglement of sports, radical politics, and working class sports fan culture. We talk just sports too. Subscribe and listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also listen to the podcast on Amazon Music, Deezer, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Pandora. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Sports as a Weapon and on Instagram and Facebook at Sports as a Weapon Podcast. Or visit our website at www.sportsasaweapon.com. Hey, this is Dave Zirin, and you are listening to the Sports as a Weapon Podcast. We came here to build the new Chicago movement. That's what we came here for. We came here to build the new Chicago movement. That's what we came here for. Hey, this is Dave Zirin, and you are listening to the Sports as a Weapon podcast. And for Nina's Cantor, who always got something to say, he says, I don't know what's wrong with Hey everyone, it's Miguel Garcia, and welcome to another episode of the Sports as a Weapon podcast, a Chicano Chicana sports podcast on the entanglement of sports, radical politics, and working class sports fan culture. And don't worry, we talk about just sports too. And just a reminder, the Sports as a Weapon podcast is now part of the Anticonquista Media Collective Network. Anticonquista is an anti-imperialist media collective. You can read my debut article that just posted yesterday on Anticonquista.com titled Paper Tiger Imperialism and the U.S. Beijing Boycott. You can follow Anticonquista on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Anticonquista. And now I'm very excited to welcome today's guest. You'll probably hear this uh, episode next week. The day today we're recording is Monday, December 13th, 2021. I'm welcoming to the show Danny Haifong. He is an anti-imperialist, independent journalist and researcher in the United States. He is a contributing editor to the Black Agenda Report, co-host of The Left Lens, and co-editor of the Friends of Socialist China. Danny is also the co-author of the book, American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Welcome to the podcast, Danny. Very happy to have you on. Yes. Thank you so much, Miguel. I appreciate your patience with me as I uh, try to recalibrate some sort of schedule these days. Uh, so, appreciate you having me on. Oh, yeah. It's no problem, man. I know how it goes. Um, and then if you want right now, you could... Uh, Talk, tell people about uh, any recent articles you've written and uh, your Patreon, all that stuff, social media. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, if you want to find my work, you can primarily find me weekly publishing at blackagendareport.com. I also at times contribute elsewhere. I'm an opinions contributor at China Global Television Network, CGTN. Also do some work at times with Mint Press News. And I also co-host the YouTube show, The Left Lens on Black Agenda Report. 
presents the Left Lenses YouTube channel. And I have my own solo show called The Internationalist Transmission on that same page. You can find me on Twitter at Spirit of Ho, Spirit of H-O. And if you can, yes, it would be great. But I know it's hard times. Uh, you can support me uh, in my work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifang. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, Miguel, I'm also co-editor of Friends of Socialist China, uh, where we just recently had the Summit for Socialist Democracy event uh, that was in response to the Summit for Democracy. And I've been publishing a lot of work about some of the things we'll be talking about today. Like, for example, Mr. Ennis Cantor, now formerly known as that, now he's Mr. Ennis Freedom, although I refuse to call him that. But anyway, I digress. I'll kick it back to you. Oh, yeah, that was, oh, man, I wonder how much money he got from uh, the CIA or State Department. <laughs> it's so, wild, yeah, it's wild, yeah, it's wild, connections, man. it's, it's, uh, what's, what's interesting is that, you know, I was, I was reading Dave Zirin's article on Ennis Cantor, and it came after I wrote about him once, and I think I published an article afterward, too, because mm -hmm. I wrote two different pieces about him, but what was so interesting about his article is that while on the whole relatively solid, there still was this kind of hearkening to liberalism where it was almost as if you, Dave Zirin alluded to saying that Ennis Cantor's politics were basically fine before he went on Tucker Carlson's show. You know, that like that was the line in the sand drawn. When in fact, uh, when you said, oh, I wonder how much money he's getting from the CIA or State Department, it just made me think, well, yeah, we should be asking that question because he was literally mentored by someone deeply connected to the CIA. And that's Fatula Gulen, the right-wing extremist, quote-unquote, who tried to overthrow the government of Turkey from his... Uh, I don't know where his mansion in the rural Pennsylvania, you know, like, like this guy is is known as leading a movement called the Gulen movement, which the CIA was literally housing hundreds of agents in these shady schools scattered across uh, Eastern Europe, Central Asia and Eastern Europe. So anyway, I digress. We can continue to talk. Oh, about yeah. That. Well, that's some good because that was going to be my first question is, you know, talking here about uh, Enos Cantor of the Boston Celtics because opening night against the New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden in New York City. He wore some interesting shoes. They said free Tibet and they had some other messages on them. And then later on, he critiqued uh, President Xi of China and, you know, went on Twitter. Oh, human rights violations, called them a dictator. The, the same kind of line we hear from uh, the U.S. corporate media and the government. And I know you mentioned Desiring. He's had a big influence on me on having this podcast. Mm -hmm. I even had him on this show. Yeah, that, he's great. I had to disagree with him on this, you know? Yeah. And that's why I had to, I kind of had to write my article that I just did for Anticonquista. It's my first one I've done for them since joining up with them. Because all I see right now, even from leftists, you know, that have like a, a platform, they're kind of just repeating that same stuff. Um, and so I had to, I wanted to write something myself, just like I've, you've done with your work, just kind of like counter that narrative. So if you want, we just talk about, you know, what has Ernest Cantor been doing? I really talked about it a little bit, but you wrote about him. So um, <laughs> what else did you write? What did you write about him in your two articles? Sure, sure. Well, one of the most important articles, uh, it was a short one. It was the first one that I wrote about him. It was about how Ennis Cantor's real 
sort of agenda, the what is politics, what he is actually promoting, aside from his obviously dubious connections, but the content of his politics, what they promote is a real division among, it's trying to sow discord among black people and the Chinese revolution. I mean, that's really what he's doing. And I made the argument that xenophobia, the xenophobia that he's spreading is so deeply connected to anti-black racism. And that's why I really like the work that Anti-Conquista does. It's actually one of the few left and anti-imperialist media platforms out there now and organizations out there now that still is willing to reject colorblindness, reject this notion that white supremacy and racism have nothing to do with empire, have nothing to do with class. And that's a trend that is actually, of course, has always been a problem in the United States, but it seems to be becoming more public, right? More public on all sides of the political spectrum, not just, you know, the Obama-loving white liberal, neoliberal Democrats who think racial justice has been achieved because black people hold political office in certain places or uh, the opposite, the far right who think that white people are under siege and under attack and that there's reverse racism and all of this uh, ridiculousness. And that's why the best thing to do is be colorblind. Well, what, what Ennis Cantor did and what I wrote about at the beginning of this month was how Ennis Cantor really does expose this connection between xenophobia and anti-black racism because of the way, and it's so interesting, he went after Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And I'm surprised so, by the Jordan one. Exactly. Me too. And he... And one of the things that Dave Zirin, who I do deeply respect, and I, I really do enjoy his work, and I do follow it, because whenever he comments about sports, he's one of the few that will bring a left perspective to it. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I have a problem with is when there is this, and Ennis Cantor was trying to do this, there's kind of like this exploitation of black politics where it's like, yeah, when Ennis Cantor started going after black people like LeBron James and like Michael Jordan, that that somehow, and it really was Michael Jordan that sparked off the outrage. Because I think my, LeBron James occupies this very special place, especially in the minds of white racists. <laughs> but even among the broader United States, there's almost like, yeah, LeBron James is kind of because he's the singular figure, because he's kind of walked the line on both sides of this mm -hmm. new racial justice movement, this new anti-racist upsurge, so to speak. And because he's more on the side of it now, more willing to publicly speak out for it, he has really drawn the ire of a lot of interesting forces in the establishment. So it's a lot easier to kind of go after him than Michael Jordan, for example, who never really rocked the boat. He never uh, supported protest movements up until recently, where it was basically mm -hmm. he was forced to, because if he didn't... The people were critiquing him. Yes. And, you know, with the whole <laughs> last dance fiasco and debacle, I mean, he, he has this almost commitment. And because he's still a public figure as, you know, a general manager owner, he needs to still have some kind of public face and people still talk about him as the best basketball player in the world. And in this new environment where most people are supportive of Black Lives Matter, he's had to throw money, all of that. But what was so interesting is that Ennis Cantor actually attacked Michael Jordan from the right. <laughs> he used the fact that Michael Jordan has this long history of denigrating, if not just ignoring the struggle of black people, right? Michael Jordan mm -hmm. famously refusing to side with his teammate Craig Hodges to boycott the, I think that was the, the 1990-91 finals and helped honestly blackball Craig Hodges from the NBA in doing so. 
And of course, with the whole comments, you know, during the election of how Jesse, uh, I think it was Jesse Helms, right? It was saying Republicans wear shoes too. I was he about used, to bring that up. <laughs> he used that. <laughs> he uses this to go on CNN and then say, as one of the wealthiest entertainers to come out of Turkey, uh, someone who has never talked about black people before, has never talked about their issues, their plight, their struggles, their history, comes out and says, and he's, he's even gotten worse since I've written the article, but he comes out and says, oh, Michael Jordan doesn't care about black people, right? He almost <laughs> kind of remember when Kanye West said it, when it was actually oh, yeah, something, when, he said it uh, yeah. when he said Bush doesn't care about black people, when Michael Myers, uh, I think that was on MTV. But it was like the polar opposite. It's like this far right figure who's spreading xenophobia is now trying to claim that Michael Jordan only cares about shoe sales because Michael Jordan is now also, also not coming out to discourage and, and support of China and to sort of lambast China. It's all about this anti-China crusade for him. And it was very sudden, right? Because Ennis Cantor basically spent most of the month of November going on these very cryptic, strange Twitter tirades about, as you said, human rights violations. And he opened up with this shoe line, these horrendous looking shoes, all talking about Tibet, Xinjiang, all of it, Hong Kong, the racist Winnie the Pooh band stereotype, yep. which is a ridiculous far right wing rumor that has no basis in reality since, you know, you go to Shanghai Disneyland and see that Winnie the Pooh is for sure banned or even Peng Shuai, the so-called missing kidnapped tennis player, <laughs> public posting on her WeChat that, not, you know, with her cat, mem you know, WeChat memories, it's kind of like Instagram, so okay. to speak, just publishing photos. And she goes, you know, and she has next to her a photo of her posing with a with someone dressed in a Winnie the Pooh <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I saw it's that. like, it's like, I mean, the, the jingoism and the white supremacy is just off, is just out of control when it comes to Ennis Cantor. But he has just suddenly adopted this. But we know that Ennis Cantor from his politics, he was trained under Fatula Gulen and the Gulenist movement, as I mentioned before, since the second grade. He, okay, so he's been in this movement yeah, since he was a child. Since he was a child, you know, he... Although, of course, Recep Tayyip Erdogan is not some progressive anti-imperialist force, but this Gulen movement wants to stage a coup that's to the right of Erdogan in some respects in the sense that the Gulen movement does not support Palestine, is incredibly pro-Israel. I mean, during the Gaza Freedom Flotilla incident, I believe, what was that, 2008, I would like to say, or was that 2004? I, f I forget which year. But he came out against it, Fatulu Gulen. And Ennis Cantor has appeared at APAC, has rubbed shoulders with Jared Kushner, has rubbed shoulders with John Bolton, has rubbed shoulders with the Clintons, and is a frequent guest on prominent Israeli media. This guy is no progressive. So anybody, and even including Dave Zirin, who I do respect, who says that, oh, Ennis Cantor's politics were somehow acceptable before this just because what he was saying was critical of China and human rights or whatnot is incorrect because his politics were actually always far right. And the anti-China agenda that Ennis Cantor follows is a far right agenda, a neocon mm -hmm. agenda. And also... The way he's approached black people, the issue of black people and their relationship to people like LeBron James and Michael Jordan, especially Michael Jordan, 
was categorically racist. I mean, there's no other way to put it because he's not making a principled political critique. He is using black people like Republicans and Democrats do as chips, as political chips for uh, his own selfish agenda. And people saw right through that. But that hasn't stopped Ennis Cantor after getting citizenship. For example, I wrote about this in the second article the following week about his uh, American exceptionalism on steroids behavior, changing his last name to freedom after getting citizenship and going on Tucker Carlson's show and saying that people should basically shut up and dribble, like stop talking about how yeah, that's essentially bad what the United States, yeah, how bad the United States is because they have more human rights than anyone else in the world, right? This American exceptionalist drivel. And now, since then, now he's going on in saying how his black teammates, almost like this really basic racist trope of, oh, yeah, my black friends who play with me and mm-hmm. who I play around, they're saying I should call out LeBron and I should call out China. And I'll have a conversation with LeBron, like, please, LeBron, basically baiting him to try to score more points and more attention, just as most of these far right figures try to do, right? They try to trigger the algorithm, build some kind of case, especially around cancel culture. I, bu- I truly believe that Ennis Cantor is trying to find an exit strategy from the NBA and then say, oh, look, I was canceled from the NBA in order to further this agenda, right? There's, there's so much political calculus going on here. And given his connections, we can't rule out that he literally is being used as an agent of the empire. I, I mean, Nobody's asking this question of him who has access to him in that capacity, mm-hmm. but it should be. I would push. I mean, I don't think, I don't know if LeBron James is listening to this, but I actually appreciated LeBron's stance in 2019 around Hong Kong when he was. Oh, when Daryl Morey did that tweet. Yeah, when Daryl Morey yeah. tweeted about, oh, freedom for Hong Kong. And then it created this whole stir in the NBA. And I appreciated when he was like, look, that's not my business and we don't know the whole story. And so we should stay out of it. I think. I would appreciate it if LeBron James, because I think he has the ability to do this, would ask Ennis Cantor even do it publicly, because Ennis Cantor isn't coming up to him. We saw Ennis Cantor. Yeah, we saw it in played, the game last week. Where I'm game, a Laker fan. Right you're a Celtic by. fan. We watched that game. We watched that <laughs> he, game. He watched. He walked right by during the shoot around in the Russell hallway. Russell Westbrook was like clapping in front of his face, like trolling him. That was incredible. <laughs> I, I love Russell Westbrook. Uh, so. <laughs> I love. I love his whole his whole thing. Like <laughs> everything Me he too. does. But. Yeah, like LeBron James should ask, what's in this for you? What, what are you doing this for? Is this really about human rights? He doesn't have to get into the content of the issue. He can just get at, he can really do a big service by just asking publicly, and it's cancer, what, what are you getting out of this? Is this all about principles or is this for yourself? He kind of already alluded to that a little bit saying that, yeah, you know, a lot of people like to try to gain attention off of my name, but it would be great if you could just ask the broad question about what his motivations are. Because I think a lot of people would back him on that and be like, yeah, what what the hell are you? He could cause a big public stir. <laughs> what exactly is your agenda here? And maybe actually, <laughs> without even having to, again, get into the content of it, stir up a conversation about China, you know, because I think we need that public debate more than ever, because most people just ignore it and allow people like Ennis Cantor to say whatever the hell they want and get away with it. And then they're the ones who end up with 
some sort of career. I know Ennis Cancer is probably angling for some sort of. Yeah, he's already. Maybe like, maybe he wants some ASCII player, money. So. Yeah, he wants some Australian Strategic Policy Institute money. He wants some of that money that Biden announced at the Summit for Democracy, four hundred twenty-four million dollars for supporting democratic reformers, quote unquote. He wants maybe some of that money that they're angling for in Congress for the uh, Innovation and Competition Act, which would have like I think three hundred million dollars for the uh, countering Chinese influence fund. Pretty much PR money. Yeah, he's definitely looking for that. And he's probably been tipped off about how there's going to be a lot more lucrative opportunities for him than the NBA could ever give him. Because to be honest, his and his cancer was not always a terrible player. I mean, he's had... No, he wasn't. He used to be a really good uh, starter, like a solid starter role player, big like a good role player big exactly but, he yeah. never could play defense but he could get mm-hmm. you offensive boards he could mm-hmm. always you know no matter what it's like he could score double digits like it's nothing because of the offensive rebounding and because he had somewhat of a post game but now he looks old he looks rusty he's not even old he shouldn't be old or rusty but he looks both and i think it's mm-hmm. because he's spending too much time on politics it's like the whole luka Doncic. oh you came in out of shape i think ennis Cantor's mind is somewhere else than basketball at this moment so so yeah, and then, that's and then he was talking was to Wang. Gui, he was talking to uh, the fake president oh, yeah. of Venezuela. <laughs> I forgot Guido. about that. There's so so he's everywhere, right? And Juan Guaido is supposed to speak at that. Yeah, Guaido. So I so I made <laughs> Guido Guaido. So I made um. Oh, I say it wrong. I you know I made a comment about that because I was watching the summit for democracy, and honestly, it, it was like psychological warfare you know it, to watch that is it was like hell incredibly boring the speeches nothing none it was all just scripted basically you know it was just joe biden's opening speech rehashed over and over and over again by different okay. political figures so there was really no reason to watch it other than i wanted to catch nathan law the hong kong opposition figure i wanted to catch him run at the, uh, off at the mouth because he's out of control that guy like joe biden invited him which was a hugely problematic political move and so indicative mm-hmm. of how the Biden administration is just as committed to hostilities with China, despite the rhetoric and despite even some of the recent talks that have been had between the administration and China. But so I wanted to catch some of that. I wanted to catch Taiwan's representative. They brought out Audrey Tang, a transgender so-called anarchist digital minister who Wait, literally so yeah. referred, literally a referred to Taiwan as a country. just got invited to the Summit for Democracy. Yeah, it was totally to pander to the United States and to show, I mean, the whole narrative that Taiwan was bringing to it was look how much, look how progressive we are and look how much the United States should support us because we follow their values and actually do it better. There was some of that. There was like, look how great we did with COVID-19. We do it better. And to just have someone like Audrey Tang basically call Taiwan a country and one that the United States should aspire to and all countries should aspire to was mind-blowing because of how, I mean, that's, if there was, if China was not a socialist country, that would basically be a declaration of war and we'd be, it would be like 19, whatever, 39 or what again, you know, like that's how serious that doing such a thing like that is. But nonetheless, China is a socialist country committed to peace. So it really is just uh, another desperate attempt on the United States to undermine China. But in any event, 
the point is that Ennis Cantor spoke to Wang Guaido, and <laughs> what's hilarious about this is Wang Guaido was supposed to speak at that summit, yep. and you can't find any record of it. I've scoured the State Department YouTube. I've scoured. They had a YouTube page. I think it's gone. The summit. Yeah, I saw a YouTube tweet. You might have shared it as well. It was like they yeah. only had like seventy-seven views, like either the first or second uh, day. Yeah, no, it was, it was, <laughs> it was pathetic. And you know, sometimes it got up to like in the hundreds for certain moments, but YouTube's decision to get rid of the dislike count is so curious because of course mm-hmm. it's so correct that the reason they did that is because they don't want to show how most mainstream media, Western media, gets ratio like on the daily because of how all the think tanks that are promoting this garbage, this imperialist garbage, they're getting ratio on the daily because people, especially active people, especially all those on the left who are actually anti-imperialist, are paying attention and then going after them, rightfully so. So in any event, it would have been interesting to see the dislike count for the Summit for Democracy. But yeah, Wang Guaido, where's the rec- there's no record of his talk. He was, you know, he was having a grand old time on FaceTime with Ennis Cantor. <laughs> and Ennis Cantor is now a champion of Wang Guaido. Interestingly enough, Ennis Cantor says he's all for democracy and human rights, but Wang Guaido wasn't elected by anybody. Nope. And he literally jumped off his career, Wang Guaido, by participating in the Gorimbas of 2014. He was one of the, he was a key figure in those, which literally there were attempts by Venezuelan opposition forces funded in the millions by the National Endowment for Democracy to like behead ordinary working class Venezuelans on all of this, you know, burn public institutions and and all basically they were riots and riots from the oligarchy and yet Ennis Cantor says he's for human rights and democracy so I think all of this exposes how Ennis Cantor is a tool Uh, whether he's a soft power agent meaning Mm -hmm. he doesn't know it he's just being used as a provocateur and he just finds economic incentive or political incentives out of it for himself or I think the more plausible be given his access and relative the attention he's been getting. I think the more plausible explanation is that he is building and developing real concrete relationships with the U.S. establishment, uh, especially the far right political establishment. And he is looking to change his career. Yep, because his NBA career close to the end. <laughs> exactly. So keeping on, obviously, we're going to talk about China a lot in this episode. So another thing that happened, I wrote about it for Anticonquista, was the uh, diplomatic boycott of the upcoming 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics in February. Can you explain how this diplomatic boycott is just another Cold War ploy against China? And then can you give some other examples of the U.S. pushing for a new Cold War with China, which we already kind of talked about here with Mm. the Cantor? Because he's even if he's not directly, he's in. He could be in just be indirectly be, being, you know, a mouthpiece. But yeah, if we want to talk about that, the diplomatic boycott. Yeah, well, I mean, Ennis Cantor's whole debacle, even up until this point, that was one of his talking points. So he mm-hmm. was close. I mean, he's very close with these humanitarian interventionists, think tank organizations, these NGOs. There's a whole consortium of them that have banded together. From the Free Student, the Free Tibet International, the Free Tibet, there's so many of them. There's the Free Tibet Student Movement, I believe, and then there's a whole bunch of other ones. But all of the, basically all of the opposition, these right-wing sort of, mainly National Endowment for Democracy, but funded by a whole bunch of sources Mm. connected to the U.S. government, 
they all banded together for a boycott Beijing 2022 campaign. And, and this has been ongoing for months. It has received bipartisan support in a lot of ways. Nancy Pelosi came out for it. And of course, all the prominent Republicans have come out for the boycott. But Ennis Cantor's whole debacle, there was the the free Tibet these Washington-based students, right? They're all based in the United States. They call themselves students. Who knows if they're still students or not? Uh, but these sort of holdovers from the, you know, in 2008, something similar kind of happened where a lot was made about Tibet in 2008 to try to slander the Summer Olympics that were held in Beijing. Uh, these organizations are still pretty, I mean, they're still funded. They're not really in the public eye, but they did stage this kind of fake protest uh, in Greece during the uh, oh, yeah, flame the lighting porch. ceremony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in the flame. They were arrested and they tried to claim that they were martyrs and all this. They couldn't hang flags. Like, it was a civil liberties issue, but it wasn't. It was just they were breaking the law in another country that, you know, the, they really had no business doing that in other than trying to force feed people this political, you know, create a scene to force feed people this political agenda of spreading a faux human rights narrative about China with regard to Tibet. So a lot of the whole Boycott Beijing 2022 campaign is about targeting, right, using these fake human rights scandals to target China and delegitimize it as the Winter Olympics approach in February of next year. And these incidents, right, the Cantor stuff, that incident, and then the Peng Shui scandal, which mm -hmm. went on for several weeks, like right? Month. Even today, I Googled yeah. it, and there's, like, still people talking about it, like, in Exactly. And, like, even if something did happen, like, people were didn't seem like they were actually getting accurate translations. <laughs> but even if it was accurate, the fact that they're like, oh, well, she appeared, and now... But still, like, they don't believe it. Like, it's so very, like, racist and paternalistic to so be like, oh, racist. I'm not going to believe yep. this Asian woman, this Chinese nope. woman. And, like, obviously, it's very easy to use the IOC because they are a corrupt organization. I've had two episodes about the Tokyo Olympics right? and the issues with that. But even then, even if they are corrupt, doesn't mean that they still didn't talk to her on a video. Like, yeah. It's, uh, it's so ridiculous. Right. All right. No, it, it 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 is. And that whole scandal I wrote about it at Mint Press because it was just so it was just such an example of the US blatantly lying, right? The US media and the Western media blatantly lying about China, kind of similarly to how they blatantly lie about the DPRK and make up the most incendiary, sensationalist stories about the country in order to delegitimize it, dehumanize it, and ultimately lay this material basis for something like a boycott or in the case of DPRK, right? These never-ending sanctions that starve the country. So yeah, Peng Shui was never missing. She posted on Weibo, I believe it was, sort of this long letter revealing this affair that she had with a former Chinese official. And nowhere in it did she mention, oh, I was sexually assaulted, raped or anything like that. It was taken down the, within 24 hours and there was all of these assumptions that it was taken down because the government made her. Now, look, Chinese social media, Chinese, they're just like our social media. Yeah, exactly. That's there the is the capacity like, to take things down when like, things like are Facebook sensitive. doesn't like censor everybody and like exactly with yeah, the political then, oh, agenda. China. I mean, this, yeah, this, in my opinion, there could have been two things that happened. China, uh, you know, the, 
Chinese government could have said, okay, this is uh, a little bit sensitive, right? We don't want this to be exploited by outside forces or by reactionary forces. So we're taking it down. Or it could have just been Peng Shui saying, oh, crap, you know, after the whole firestorm that came out of it, ah, that's not something I want to be a part of. Uh, that was a mistake. You know, we all we all have these moments where we're exactly. emotional, where we're human, and we have these, you know, social media is a different way to relate and to interact. And we're just, you know, we just go off. And then we're and like, I, oh, I do crap. That a lot, so. maybe we shouldn't have done that, you know, or maybe, you know, maybe I didn't get what I thought I was going to get out of it. And so given the firestorm, I wouldn't be surprised if she just took it down because of the way that the US and West really have exploited her in order to further this boycott agenda and to basically slander China. And so you know, she wasn't boy- kidnapped. None of that was happening. She like turned up essentially within a day of all these allegations that were saying that she was kidnapped and missing. She was you know, helping out with a teenage tennis match in Beijing. And she went publicly, as you said, to the IOC, talked to them. She had emails to the uh, Steve Simon, the WTA mm-hmm. president, who, CEO, who jumped right on this, obviously, after, you know, once it became something that would have been lucrative for him, he jumped right on. It and she emailed him and she's saying like, "Come on, man! <laughs> like, like, stop! I don't want, I don't want this to continue." And then uh, she emailed out another thing that said, "Hey, look, I, if you're going to have media talk about me, please talk to me first. And of course, not, no one has listened to that, right? No one, no one in the mainstream press is trying to talk to Peng Shui herself. They are basically rejecting this liberal, white liberal, feminist notion of believing women saying that, oh, we can't believe her because the Chinese government is just that repressive. So yeah, it does further this new Cold War agenda because it frames China in this very quote unquote totalitarian, a very new, a very Cold War term frame, the anti-communist framing in order to continue this policy agenda. And there is a policy agenda here. All of this from Ennis Cantor's adoption of all of this fake human rights scandals to the Peng Shui thing, all of it furthers real policies that are being pushed through, whether it's the Innovation and Competition Act, which we mentioned before, which has all that money for countering, quote unquote, Chinese influence, whether it is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which literally says, yeah, U.S. corporations cannot do anything in Xinjiang unless they tell us they're not using forced labor, right? It's like you're guilty until proven innocent kind of thing. And that sets a precedent for maybe further sanctions, which the US already has placed on a Chinese solar panel, a solar corporation, which continues under Joe Biden. Uh, I believe Joe Biden was the one who actually uh, instituted those sanctions back earlier this year. So, You know, this new Cold War is very multifaceted and it's entered the realm of culture, which is why it's so interesting to have conversations about sports right now. Because over the last couple of years, I would say arguably since 2019, but we go further. I think the whole Trump era and into uh, the post-Trump era, we've seen how sports, because of Black Lives Matter and because of this new Cold War in China, there's been more discussion about very concrete domestic and foreign policy issues within the realm of sports than ever before. I think it's no mistake that the sports that tend to have a disproportionate number of black players tend to be the sports where this discourse is the strongest, um, especially basketball, where I think that 
short-lived strike that happened during the NBA bubble in 2020 of the summer 2020. I think that really did send kind of like a shockwave through the establishment. And so now there's all these attempts to ensure that the political discourse that happens there is very muted and doesn't end up like some Colin Kaepernick situation where now you have to constantly explain yourself. Yeah, now you have to constantly explain yourself as the establishment as why what you did is the correct thing, right? And then the establishment never wants to be put in that position, especially when it comes to something as profitable as sports, because now you're getting into all this, you're getting into finance, you're getting into, you know, real valuable commodities, like as Ennis Cantor says, the shoes and all of that, the advertisements, the media, right? These are incredible incredibly profitable institutions that any disruption like a strike for example or just NBA players being vocal and active about political issues is a potential problem because as the liberals you know who try to feign support they're always constantly talking about oh these players have a platform these players have a platform well they have a platform but they only have a platform so long as they're saying the acceptable thing and and I think that this is why sports is being focused on when it comes to this uh, new Cold War on China, because there is this opportunity to kind of exploit these sentiments, I think, right? And try to redirect them and scapegoat them onto China because there is this huge impetus. The mil- uh, I didn't even mention the military industrial complex, which is really embedded in all the sports, including the NBA. They really want the anti-China drive to continue because they have hundreds of billions of dollars riding on this of military contracts, of basing structures and deals and occupations of, you know, the Luchu Islands and of Guam, you know, et cetera. Like they- Yeah, there's, there's 400 400- bases, U.S. bases that surround China. Exactly. So that's part of it. So there's the sanctions. There's that. There's the propaganda. There's, I mean, diplomatically, right? We've had all of this back and forth between Biden and China. But at the end of the day, sanctions are still on Chinese officials, Communist Party officials because of the so-called Xinjiang issue. And uh, nothing has really been reversed in that way. So there's the attack on the media, right? There's a lot of attacks on Chinese media, calling it state-affiliated media. and yeah, there is just, I mean, there's a whole laundry list of things. This new Cold War yeah, is building up right now. Obviously. Yeah. It's building up, obviously, because the Olympics is coming up. So, exactly. Like the I don't, they don't want, I mean, my theory about the Olympics, too, is that they don't want the establishment, the U.S., this is why they're diplomatic, diplomatically boycotting is because they don't want to give any credence to something that I think is going to be a lot different than prior Olympic Games, right? So you have a country, China, unlike, let's say, a Brazil, unlike, let's say, a Tokyo, you have Mm -hmm. a country in China that is improving the situation economically and ecologically, right? Because those are always the two big issues with Olympics is, oh my gosh, the Olympics, right? The the building, you know, the the displacement of people is, mm-hmm. is going to be wild. Which is happening right now in Los Angeles for the exactly. 2028 Olympics. Yeah. It's already happening. Exactly. So, you, yeah. you know, usually the thing is, oh, all these private corporations are going to get all these lucrative deals. They're going to just lay waste to the, you know, indigenous, the workers, all of them. They're going to be displaced. And, oh, guess what? We're also going to destroy your environment. We're going to poison your water. We're going to disrupt the ecology. We're going to deforest all of that. China, it's different. Actually, China is using the majority of the facilities from the 2008 Summer Olympics and all of the power that is going to be used at the Winter Olympics is going to be 
renewable energy, which is something that the U.S. does not want anybody to see. They're not going to be able to hide it because the only way they could hide it really, maybe they'll find a way, the corporate media will find a way, you know, if they, they have to cover it because that's losing a lot of money, not covering yeah. the Winter Olympics, but maybe they'll find a way to cover it where they can hide it. I don't know. I went to China. So if you have eyes, you can see all the investment in renewable energy. So I don't know how they're going to hide it. But nonetheless, that's going to be on display. And the fact that COVID-19 is controlled there. So they're able to hold the Olympics and the policies that China has implemented may be publicized more so than ever. Right. And, and I think those two things, the U.S. establishment does not want. So really, it's just convenient. Anything they, they would have found a way to try to make the Beijing Olympics something worth talking about in relation to a so-called boycott, because there's all of these kind of embarrassing blemishes the U.S. has to hide away and tuck away for itself. And so the the strategy is to scapegoat China. And it just so happens to fit well with this overall geopolitical vision of containing China through this new Cold War with all of its military, economic, political, and cultural uh, manifestations. Yeah. And then this whole human rights thing with the Uyghurs, it's all started from Adrian uh, Zenz. I, I have a degree in anthropology, a master's. <laughs> he's he's an anthropologist. Nobody in anthropology takes this guy serious. Um, <laughs> you know, he's he literally has claims that the gray zone has covered extensively were pretty much manipulated. And then I think he like his report that he wrote was uh he like cited the uh the Chinese network of human rights or whatever they're called. That's right. that, that's human rights also funded by the think, National yeah. Endowment of Democracy. And they only interviewed eight people when I was yeah. like, wait, what? So you only <laughs> interviewed eight people that you put in your report for my own, just some master's research to get my degree. It's nothing big. I interviewed right. like 15 people and then I did all this other stuff. Even I interviewed more people for my little master's research. Mm -hmm. But everyone's just going off this report. No one's questioning it. And then, as you mentioned before, we got the Australian Strategic Policy Institute who gets mm -hmm. money from the Australian DOD, the U.S. State Department, Department of Defense. And as you mentioned, all those military contractors like Lockheed Martin and uh, Boeing and stuff like that in their own document on their website, which I cited in the article I wrote for Anticonquista, you find, I think, on page five of that PDF and they're funding money for the Uyghur, you know, human rights thing. So it's right there. The evidence is right there. And Everyone's just going off these two things and not even like checking on them. So obviously some people it's just on purpose. And then there's other people who I know that I know are smart, but they're still like pushing this agenda and it's pretty annoying. <laughs> just went on a rant right there. Yeah, no, it's it is <laughs> annoying. It is. I mean, honestly, the issue I'm having with it too is that all of the debunking about it has been done, right? Yep. there's it's obvious these are all claims that's made up i mean it is made up out of whole cloth that nathan rooster over at asbi can go and go on google earth and just point to random parts of a map of a city in xinjiang and say that's a concentration camp and of course a lot of people will believe him or at least you know they would once believe him i think that organization is has less of an audience than i think a lot of us think they do but think they have but at the end of the day you know, we've we've all been engaged in these conversations and it's so easy to debunk, you know, Adrian Zenz, right? Jamestown Foundation, literally yeah, a Jamestown. CIA. <laughs> it's, an, it's an organization that was literally started by a CIA connected defector of the Soviet Union who wanted to essentially create 
what the Jamestown Foundation is, which is an anti-communist sort of rag for the military establishment, the intelligence apparatus. The same thing for the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, literally started by Congress, literally started by yeah, Congress. Yeah, 1993. As so a monument. Google it. Exactly. <laughs> as a monument, really, like an organizational monument to anti-communism after the fall of the Soviet Union in order to preserve that anti-communist knowledge base and to spread that ideology. And even today, right, I'm in New York City and in Times Square, they were able to put something in Times Square about how communism killed a hundred kajillion people, right? They always go on these ridiculous numbers that are completely fabricated. But at the end of the day, these are the sources that are being used and Adrian Zenz mm-hmm. being called a scholar over and over and over again by all of the establishment media and also the left as well, the left, so-called left liberal media. Yeah, he was on Mark- Democracy Now. Democracy Now in 2019. Yeah, so I wrote an article for The Gray Zone about this where, yeah, you know, Democracy Now has carried water for a lot of this anti-China human rights propaganda narratives where they don't challenge it at all, right? They'll have Adrian Zenz, they'll have Ai Weiwei, right? So-called Chinese dissident talk about how awful China is. They'll have all of these very connected figures that have a real vested interest in spreading propaganda about China. They never do anything that's on, just like Syria and just like all these other anti-imperialist questions and questions of imperialism. They don't do honest journalism. They don't reference Chinese media. They don't talk to Chinese people. They don't even try to engage with, you know, you would think, oh, you want to be an adversarial journalist? Well, go and talk to, I mean, you know, there's, they have spokespeople, China has spokespeople, you could talk to them, you know, you can have them on, I'm sure. If the conditions and situation were different, now the trust is completely broken. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure there would be openings for real discourse and, and, and real conversation about this stuff and let China give its side of the story, but they won't and they don't. And, and I think that's how this is all really just one big scam for empire, mm-hmm. the human rights question, because not only is there no verifiable evidence of any kind of oppression of the Uyghurs, but also there's a lot of evidence that shows that like life for the Uyghurs, life for all Chinese people has improved a whole lot for over the last 40 plus years. And the same could be said about all countries that the U.S. slanders, right? Usually when the U.S. is slandering a country, it's not because it's doing wrong. It's because it's actually doing differently and and actually the way that it's conducting itself is beneficial to people and not the corporations and the capitalists and the militarists, which, you know, we're constantly told are the so-called civilized forces of the world, uh, when in fact, they're the ones who are doing basically all the destruction to the planet, to the people, to the indigenous, to the, to the oppressed. And yet we're told it's China. So there's so, there's so much to this, but the human rights propaganda in particular scares people. I think there's a lot of people on the left who are afraid of approaching this. They're afraid yeah. of coming out because of the ways in which, look, the far right, they're mobilized online. Like as much exactly. as I, as much as I am against, right, this kind of like corporate liberal, capitalist neoliberal censorship scheme, which which literally targets people like us and that mm-hmm. downgrades us in the algorithm. It makes it harder for our work to be found. It's also true that the far right, because there's money behind the far right, because there's always been money behind the far right, because most of these forces come from, at the very least, petty bourgeois backgrounds, professional class backgrounds, and or just ruling class backgrounds, that they're mobilized, that they have a, a, hu- a huge enough base, a large enough base to boost their own stuff. And, and they have the capacity 
to do that. And they have the capacity to attack others who go against the grain. I mean, I was on Jimmy George's show a few times and everyone would tell me who was watching it on the people, you know, colleagues, comrades, they would say, that chat and that like it would get ratio like it would like the videos would get ratio because they're mobilizing and they they know what they believe in right the jan mm-hmm. the january sixers they they know what they believe in they were there with like free hong kong and all this nonsense during the whole january 6th uh so-called the, the free hong kong's like protesters are wearing exactly. mega hats exactly and the free hong kong protesters in hong kong have solidarity with their far right white brothers mm-hmm. in in the united states right like this is this is real. I mean, this is the objective situation. And so there's a lot of fear about this because how are you going to get seen and heard when anything you say that opposes imperialism and exposes the human rights industrial complex and all of this in relation to China, when you do that, they're the ones who are coming after you. And so it's so much easier to just ignore it and then continue to just talk about how Mm -hmm. bad the Democrats are. We can do that. Yeah, sure. I do that all the time. But at the same time, this bipartisan consensus on China is just as dangerous as the bipartisan consensus on Russia. And in some ways for us socialists, for us communists, it's more so because the target is a socialist country and the consequences, right, of a conflict between China and the United States are so much more dire than anywhere else in the world. Because yeah, there is a real capacity for the United States to do something really disastrous, to, to really jump off something incredibly disastrous. And so that's what makes this new Cold War so important. And something I like want to point out too is like, you know, the people on the left and more, you know, liberals, progressives that are pushing this narrative with China, you know, they'll talk about stop Asian hate, but then push this. And I don't know how they don't realize how this contributes to that hate. It creates reactionaries. We'll see people attacking Asian people on the streets, like throughout the whole country right now. Like it's happening. And I don't know how they they're just ignoring it. Like, dude, you got, they've got to realize this also, you're you're pushing this whole anti-China narrative is, you know, creating this hate. It's just, uh, it's so annoying, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It really is. I mean, yeah. That's why I appreciate guys like you uh, doing all the work (laughs) in journalism. Trying, trying, you know, and trying to keep it in the realm of analysis too, because we can, we can debunk this stuff, as I said before, until we're right in the face. Uh, the facts just aren't there. They never will be there. If, you know, China is not a closed society as much as people say, you know, as, all, as much as these anti-China forces say it is. But the more that the U.S. attacks China, the more that China has to be more careful. How could you not exactly. be, right? It's like when under conditions of war, even a new Cold War, a Cold War, there has to be protections. And I mean, this is the whole, I think, kind of a new narrative that the left has come up with, which I think is both correct and can have limitations at times. But understanding the DPRK, for example, is needing a strong national defense system in order to preserve and protect its territorial integrity, its sovereignty, and its self-determination. I think the same goes for China, right? All of Mm -hmm. this meddling, right? Because it is direct interference. I mean, we're talking about sanctions on tech corporations. We're talking about diplomatic sanctions. We're talking about the CIA literally saying that they've been trying to spy on China for how many years now? They're not successful, but they're going to try to be, right? As of this October, they're going to really try their hardest to learn how to spy on China by creating mission centers, right? That's what the CIA director, William Burns, said early this October. So 
you have to be careful. I mean, I, I've talked about this in the past. No one else has. None of the Glenn Greenwalds, none of them will say that they won't talk about the Chihu 360 analysis that was done. So that's a, a Chinese cybersecurity firm. Uh, they scoured the Vault 7 documents released by WikiLeaks and they found that the CIA had actually tried to, they had actually conducted cyber espionage and literally hacked into major industries in China, aviation, energy, telecommunications, okay. stole Chinese people's private data in order to try to spy on them. Like this is a, a, the real thing. People criticize China's great firewall all they want. But when things like that are happening, what do you do? And then yeah, again, they got to defend and, themselves and, you know, in cybersecurity and all these other things. And if you're an independent country that especially a global south country, you think you, you want Facebook, YouTube, all these Western corporations ruling over your information sphere? Look at what that's done to the U.S. Look at what that's done. It is the monopolization of the media is so tight that people like us and, and narratives and, and, you know, that any alternative narrative to the establishment is completely thrown out, right? So there's almost like this libertarian anti-regulation thing that goes on with China, where it's like every criticism of China from the George Soros's to even people on the so-called left, they always are like, oh, there's no free speech in China, no free speech. But then you ask, well, are you for publicly owned media? Are you for regulation of media? They'll be like, yeah, are you, you're against the 1996 telecommunication? That's of course. It's like, well, then why are you denigrating China or any other damn country that's <laughs> exactly. literally defending themselves and trying to preserve the concept of publicly owned media? That's what state owned media is. I mean, it's just like, it's like brain worms, right? It's like the mm -hmm. racism, the, the Cold War, anti-communism. It's like they can't get it out of their heads that there are countries out there and people out there that still have a concept of these things and still have principles. You know, I think it's more of a reflection of the chaos and the absolute decay of U.S. imperialism, where even these basic principles, which liberals and people left of liberals, people who didn't even call themselves socialists or communists, they used to champion. Now they don't, especially when it comes to countries that the U.S. doesn't like. So I want to talk about this past Saturday, you were a part of this uh, Summit for Socialist Democracy. I was I watched it, woke up at 6 a.m. over here in the West <laughs> Thank Coast you. to watch it. <laughs> That's awesome. But uh, you're welcome. Great event. It was, had a bunch of good speakers from all over the world. So uh, just want to tell you, uh, thank you for putting that together, All everyone that participated. But could you summarize and highlight some of the uh, critical takeaways from the event? Yeah. So essentially, Friends of Socialist China, we collaborate with International Manifesto Group to put this event together. I'm a co-editor of Friends of Socialist China. So socialistchina.org is the website if you want to follow the work that we do. We, we started, it's me and two comrades who live out in London. And we started this because we felt that one of the weaknesses that we have now on the left, especially in the West, is that while there is more opposition to a new Cold War, so to speak, and this is more for the advanced forces, right? This is more of a intervention in that realm because uh, we stu still do value sort of the trying to get a broad anti-war message out there. But at the same time, there needs to be a role when we were Leninist, Marxist Leninist, and we believe there still needs to be a role for uniting the advanced and winning over advanced forces to the correct position. And so our position is that we need to have some kind of institution that relates a completely unconditional message of solidarity with the process that's going on in China, given the 
historic moment that we're in, the new Cold War, as well as China's ascendancy. Like it's a legitimate development. There is mm-hmm. a dialectical process happening where the US is in decline, China's on the rise, and China just so happens to not be this mirror image of the United States, like some of these harebrained leftists seem to think. So that's Friends of Socialist China. And so we've done a few events. And this one, we really wanted to send the message that the five countries which have Communist Party leadership over the state, uh, that's Laos, that's China, that's Vietnam, that's Cuba, and that's the DPRK. We wanted to have an event to counter the Summit for Democracy being held by Biden, where he basically invited all of the US's lackeys some of which even declined the invitation uh, <laughs> anyway. But he invited as many as he could to try to use the opportunity, uh, especially this moment of internal crisis, right? By <laughs> The Biden administration is in right now, I think, one of the worst crises of legitimacies, legitimacy that we've seen, right? It's almost like this climax. The approval ratings are dipping incredibly. COVID-19 is out of control. The economic situation is not, not getting better. Actually, it just so happens that all of the bailout policies during COVID-19 are now snapping back and creating huge price jumps, which only exacerbates what was already a sensitive situation, you know, with unemployment, underemployment, So we have a real dire situation. And so Joe Biden said, okay, I promised this at the beginning of my administration. And what better time with this whole Olympics coming up, what better time than now than to hold it and try to reassert some sort of image of U.S. hegemony and American exceptionalism. So we wanted to show that there are socialist democracies out there, right? Uh, Especially in this form. And... You know, we invited speakers from all sorts of places. And although we we privileged, of course, the five governments that are led by communist parties, we also, you know, invited Carlos Ron from the Bolivarian, Simon Bolivar Institute. But we had speakers from, you know, we had Luna Oi, the Vietnamese YouTuber who's been doing mm-hmm. great work exposing the real Vietnam to Western audiences. We had Chang An Fu from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and we had a few Chinese speakers. And so, you know, we had speakers that spoke on these countries, what their achievements were, what the differences between socialist and capitalist democracy is. And, uh, you know, it was incredible. We had Nguyen Natal, which is... Um, a Korean organization based, I believe it's in the United States, but uh, they do a lot of work around demystifying Korea, especially the DPRK. Um, and so it was, it was a great event. It was, I think, something that isn't attempted often, right? And we hope mm-hmm. to do more of this where we don't counter the new Cold War. You know, we have, I think we have a specific obligation here. We can't just counter a new Cold War with just saying we want peace, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, at this point, it is becoming increasingly clear that it's not a matter of just conflicting parties. It's not, oh, the U.S. is just angry that it's going to lose its economic status. Of course, that's one of the principal contradictions. But I think one thing that is becoming increasingly clear is that the United States and its allies are actually also worried about a country that says it's governed by socialism with Chinese characteristics is going to is actually has already, in my opinion, taken the mantle of global leadership of a different form. And what this could mean for the rest of the world, we're already seeing the reverberations of that. We're seeing the cooperation between China and African states. We're seeing the cooperation between China and Latin American states. We're seeing it all over, right? That literally the world is flocking towards China, the Arab world, the Middle East, 
Russia, right? The world is flocking towards China and the U.S. is kind of empty handed right now. They don't really have anything to offer. So they're saying, okay, well, we'll blow you up. We'll blow up the world. We'll dominate the world. We'll occupy the world. We'll destabilize it just so we can maintain our grip on power and our ability to maintain this exploitative economic order of capitalism and of imperialism. So that I think is an important thing to highlight always in this event, I think by approaching this question of socialist democracy, that there are countries that are organizing their societies, not just, you know, not just social democracies, not just like the Western Nordic countries, which Mm -hmm. have some semblance of a welfare state, but yet do whatever the United States wants when it comes to foreign policy. No, there are countries out there who are trying to model domestically. They're trying to figure out how to get out of extreme poverty, how to protect their territorial integrity and sovereignty. They're trying to figure out what does it mean to build a socialist society on the way to communism, China being the most advanced, but not the singular country out there doing this. And uh, at the same time, you have capitalist countries which are on the decay and on the decline. And the farce of capitalist democracy is, I think, readily apparent to most. But it is the fact that there isn't an alternative, which is baffling, I think, a lot of the mm-hmm. left, right? And so, there, it's so easy to want to gain an audience on the right or to just adopt libertarian tendencies or anarchist tendencies or anti-communist tendencies. But we wanted to show that there, there is another way. It's out there. It can't be copied, but it can be, I think, a guide for us and especially a guide to the need for solidarity and to really try to learn and unlearn, right, all of this anti-communist propaganda we've been fed about these countries so that we can allow them to breathe, we can fight our governments and allow them to breathe and then also figure out, well, you know, what is the path that we need to take here on our march to socialism. Yeah, it was like I said, I'm glad you guys put this event on and I hope to see some more events similar to this. We really need it. And this, I'm glad we talked about this whole South-South cooperation that China's doing with the Global South countries. Um, right now I'm working on like a Cuba, Cuba internationalism, a sport article I'm going to write. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I've been like researching that stuff, but China, you know, is doing similar things with their internationalism. They're signing these bilateral agreements with Latin American countries as well. Like I think it was 19 out of 33, uh, Latin American and Caribbean countries have signed these bilateral agreements with China for like this infrastructure stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's just good to point out these things from China because Cuba has been doing it, but China is a much bigger, you know, country, much more uh, has more uh, influence right now. So I'm really glad to see China doing this. And uh, we need to, you know, point this out and show people there's another, you know, there's another way to live in this world, not this capitalist way we all live here in America. Like, because everyone is so, they're so conditioned with these anti-communism propaganda that we've been fed since we were little kids. Like, so I'm really glad we're having these events from organizations like Friends of Socialist China and all these other organizations. So I want to ask you, you're an independent journalist. You're really uh, good at covering the real China. So that was obviously one of the main reasons I wanted to have have you on my podcast and talk about this stuff that's related to sports and then just, you know, politics that has to do with China. (laughs) But can you uh, tell me what is vital for you as an independent journalist from the West? Like why it's vital for you to tell the story of China? from the perspective of China and an anti-imperialist perspective? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because I was always, when I first, you know, I first entered, was introduced to Marxism in 2011, 2012, 2013. Kind of around the time I started. Yeah, and it it took me a while, right? It took me a while to really understand, to really get it. 
But, you know, when I started learning about Vietnam, that was really an entry point for me because all of the, you know, the Ho Chi Minh, uh, General Jop, right, all these figures and then the Black Liberation Movement, they were all talking about communists and socialists. And, and that was really an entry point for me to Marxism, Leninism, which has always informed all of my writing, all of my journalism, all of my analysis. And so I think one of the vital things for me when it comes to China, right, I was someone who I think your first anyone who be, who starts to look at Marxism, Leninism is unfortunately exposed to narratives about China, right? Being capitalist now, but Mao, the Mao period was the pure period. That was the great period. And so I began in that place. I was never like hardline, oh, I'm for the Mao period and I'm against the Deng period, right? Like some uh, communists were. I just didn't really pay attention. Mm -hmm. But then the Obama pivot to Asia started happening. The announcement by Xi Jinping of the Belt and Road Initiative, right? That event started to make me think, okay, well, what's really going on here? Fortunately, there wasn't a lot of source material to really understand it. But then 2018, 19, the whole human rights propaganda started coming up, the whole concentration camps narrative. And this was after all of the work I had done around Syria, Libya, right? It felt like that was happening again. Russia, Russia Gate, that was all happening again, it seemed like, right? That, that now China was the target. And so I wanted to know why, given that I knew that China had a history of socialism and still ascribed to socialism. So then I got the opportunity to travel to China. And uh, that was an incredible experience. Experience, right? Just to be there right before COVID-19, right before co coronavirus, the novel coronavirus was even first discovered. I was there. I, was, I think I was in Beijing or, or maybe I was Xi'an or further west at that time. But I was there while no one was really talking about it at that time because it was still just seen as like, a, oh, this could be something, but maybe it's, it's not. China, we're like yeah. Cross, yeah, we're like crossing our fingers that it's not. So none of us, no one was really under any sort of panic at the time we were there. But right after we got back, <laughs> it was an emergent situation because it was found that it was a very contagious virus. And, and then, of course, you know, it went into pandemic territory. So anyway, just being there, seeing the infrastructure development, seeing how, you know, the state is still very much in command. The socialist state is still very much in command in China. It's so it's so obvious, right, from the way that cities are planned to all the investments in infrastructure, to the renewable energy investments, to the, the price of public services, which are extremely cheap to the fact that it's so obvious the progress that's been made economically for, for people there. No one that we talked to could say that their life had not gotten better over the course of generations. And I think that was just very inspiring, right? To be, do that, okay. to go on high-speed rail, to see the confidence that Chinese people had. Like there is something about, right? There's a statistic that's bandied around, right? Of like China, people in China are satisfied with their government, like 95% to 98%. And that was done by the Harvard Ash Center and I think another sociological study that after the pandemic that was taken okay. that showed that the support for the Chinese government actually grown. And when you when I was there, it's like it's so obvious. It's even it, it, was, okay. it was striking because even in Cuba, like Cuba, I felt like there was a dearth, a much more dearth of like because of the ways in which sanctions and and whatnot had caused not necessarily disagreement with the government. Like everyone that I met was for the revolution, but there was like, okay, what do we do, right? Because people want to know what they're gonna do, especially young people. Like, what are we gonna do to have 
to make sure our lives are better in China that that situation doesn't really exist. So okay. like people were just like, my life has improved. I asked them about concentration camps. They're like, what is that? Like, I don't even <laughs> like, I don't even know what that means. Right. So I got to go to Xinjiang, the Uyghur autonomous region, got to go to Rumchi. Beautiful. Right. You, I got to see how the West of China, right. One of these last areas of the poverty alleviation campaign, how much they've caught up to the cities, right, to the to the major cities like Beijing in terms of economic development. And so after that trip, you know, it was really just like, damn, the propaganda against China is so off, right? It's just, it's just not even remotely true. So I, I almost felt like I, I had a commitment to tell that mm-hmm. story. Also, growing up as a so-called Asian American, Vietnamese in this country, like the racism hurled towards China is very much so just a more professionalized, sophisticated form of racism that I experienced just like on the streets, right? like, like, like in the real world uh, among those folks who have of course, ingested the war propaganda and see it as something that they should hold on to for their own material interests, right? I mean, anyone who grows up so-called Asian Americans uh, from the diaspora of that part of the world in the United States understands that racism is a problem. And then it's mm-hmm. a matter of well, how you respond to it. And so my response was, well, solidarity, you know, now, this is not everyone's response. But mine was before it was cool, before Black Lives Matter, and all that I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I should have solidarity with you know, the black community in my neighborhood. I have solidarity with everybody who experiences, you know, this situation and this issue, sometimes even a lot of the times, even in a worse material sense. So, yeah, I think that the combination of those things, you know, I was already deeply anti-imperialist, already doing a lot of work around that. And then the combination of going there and all of that, which has occurred since this new Cold War, all of it in the midst of all these incredible achievements that China has made, it just makes sense to tell this story. Like It's like, if I'm not going to do it, if people, you know, if I'm not going to build some kind of be part of that process of building some kind of base, political base from which to oppose this very dangerous escalation on the part of the empire, then, you know, I'm not doing my duty as a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. So, so really, that's how I felt, especially since 2019, definitely. I think that's important that you're telling people, you know, obviously, you work anti-imperialist, you're communist, but you've actually been to China. So you've experienced it, you've seen it with your own eyes. And a lot of these people spreading this misinformation, this propaganda, this anti-China propaganda haven't. And so I think that's why um, you're one of my favorite follows, like on Twitter when it comes to this stuff. (laughs) So, (laughs) Because you're always covering this stuff and there's obviously other people too, but it's very important, man. So I'm really glad you're doing it. Even that's why I wanted you on my show, especially because I see recently, especially with the sports stuff coming up with Cantor and China. Oh, yeah. Like we got to counter this because all I see on Twitter from people that are supposed to be leftist too is they're like pushing this narrative and definitely got to counter it. So I'm glad you came on this podcast to talk about it. And it's a trip when you see, even when you see videos of China, I've never been there. I want to go there hopefully next year. Um, Yeah, definitely. But you see all the videos of all the, you know, their trains and their light rails. Like it looks so awesome. Like their cities just look way more like futuristic than our. It is. It is. Like actually. (laughs) Our crumbling infrastructure. Like I've only been in New York City once where you live, which was this past summer. I finally went and just seeing like, you know, I rode the subway and I'm like, man, I haven't been to China yet, but I've seen the videos. I'm like, this is a subway in the United States. You see those memes. Yeah. You know, those, those leftist memes that talk about it but 
it's just a trip how people really buy into this propaganda. And as yeah. you mentioned, they're really using that that same playbook they use for the for North Korea, for the Democratic oh, yeah. People's Republic of North Korea. So really glad that you're doing this work. So that should wrap up our talk today, our conversation. I'm really glad you came on again. Can you tell people where to find your work? Anything new that you might work on? You could uh, plug that in again. Yeah, sure. So you can find me weekly, uh, mainly at blackagendareport.com. But usually I'm writing something weekly, at least doing some analysis for CGTN or MinPress or, or somewhere else, sometimes my own work, you know, on my blog at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong, where if you can financially support me, you can support me there. I am planning on a Substack eventually. But if you're able to do that now, that's great. And then, you know, so I also, you can find me on YouTube at the Black Agenda Report Presents the Left Lens, and you can find my program, The Internationalist Transmission, there. Definitely follow me on Twitter at Spirit of H-O, Spirit of Ho. You can also follow Friends of Socialist China on Twitter or go to the website. So it's socialistchina.org. You can also find uh, them on Twitter. Just type in Friends of Socialist China. Yeah, I would say that's, those are the main places where you can find me. I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, I love of, of course, talking sports, talking uh, about the cultural realm of, of empire and of capitalism, imperialism. It's, it's very important because a lot of a lot of us ordinary folks, a lot of us ordinary working people, uh, this is this is where we're at. You know, we it's it's a particular aspect of society that I think is seeded a lot by those who are, are disconnected a bit from these very important aspects of of life. And there's there's one there's few others more important than sports that just hold so much influence over consciousness, political consciousness. I would say, like I I mean, I, it's interesting. I played basketball for much of my adolescent life. And was like, oh my God, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna be a baller. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go all the way with it. And that's, you know, when you pick that up, you know, I've talked to Nate about this over at Redspin mm-hmm. Sports, but when you do pick up sports, whether you're a player or you're a fan, like there is this relationship that you build with it, which does have a political character to it, right? We, mm-hmm. we do get a lot of our early political messages from our experiences with people, organizations, all of that through sports. And of course, and then of course, the media and the professional, the you know, these multi-billion dollar, right, sporting leagues that, that are tied to big business, we we get a lot out of that, that it becomes our, our venue for a lot of uh, information or misinformation. So, it's important to, to do it. And I appreciate that you're doing this. Thank you. And then I want to plug in actually one of your recent uh, YouTube stream talks that you had. Uh, you spoke to someone, uh, a black American that lives in China. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I encourage everyone to watch Danny's uh interview with that person because yeah it's really important to show you know someone a black american's experience in china so yeah it's it really in. interesting he's a great guy dana uh showtime burton he's a longtime hip-hop artist he calls himself the hip-hop advocate he uh he's lived in china for i think he said 19 years so he's wild. been shanghai based he's been doing everything related to hip-hop there and i've been connected with him on social media for quite some time for a few years now i believe and you know, he's from, he's like, I think he's a Detroit native and he, you know, he just has a very interesting perspective just being there for so long, being connected to China in that way. So yeah, definitely that's one of my latest episodes of the Internationalist Transmission. That's episode five. And you can find that on the YouTube channel, Black Agenda Report presents The Left Lens. Awesome, Danny. Again, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, It was a pleasure to finally get you on here to talk about this stuff. Have a good one. Yeah, you too, Miguel. Thank you so much.
Molotov MVP segment, where each episode I honor someone in sports who lights that cocktail and tosses it back at enemy lines, creating a spark. Today's Molotov MVP is LeBron James. I'm not really going to talk about him. You know all about LeBron James, the king. But I wanted to have a little fun with this segment since our episode was about Ennis Cantor. So enjoy this Molotov MVP. It's just some audio clips. So thank you again for listening to another episode of the Molotov MVP segment. Uh, LeBron James is one of them, but not many people are talking about Michael Jordan. You know, Michael Jordan has not, hasn't done anything, nothing for the black community in America, in America besides just, you know, giving them uh, money. I feel like we need to pull out these athletes. I, at least LeBron James is going out there and, you know, uh, being the voice of all the uh, people He's lying about that too because I actually walk out of tunnel and I stopped to take a picture with a kid and he was right behind me and he he was the one literally walked right past me and didn't say anything but hey I'm always open to talk for sure if it, whenever he wants to have a conversation it's gonna be a very uncomfortable conversation for him but whenever he wants to talk I'm I'm always here. LeBron, do you have any reaction to um, Ennis Cantor using? Your likeness on his shoes in his uh, advocacy for human rights? Um, no, I think if you know me, I don't really give too many people my energy. Um, you know, and um, he's definitely not someone I will give my energy to. Um, you know, trying to use my name to create, you know, an opportunity for himself. Um, um, definitely won't uh, comment too much on that, um, if any. And that that'll be where I lay that at. Um, you know, he's always... You know, kind of had a, you know, a word or two to say, you know, in my direction. Um, you know, and as a man, you know, if you got really, if you got an issue with somebody, you really come up to him. He had his opportunity tonight. I seen him in the hallway, he walked right by me, so, you know. Thank you. And for Enos Cantor, who always got something to say, he says, I don't know what's wrong with segment of Chicano Chicana Sports History. Today, I'd like to highlight Ma Jin, head coach of the Mexican National Diving Team. Ma Jin is a Chinese diving coach and native of Beijing, and since 2003 has led Mexico's diving team to four Olympics, including bronze in the women's synchronized three-meter springboard this past summer in Tokyo. Ma Jing is one of 3,000 Chinese sports coaches and trainers sent to 126 countries worldwide as part of China's commitment to sport internationalism and South-South cooperation. 
Majin has led Mexico to over 100 medals in international competition and coached Mexico's most decorated woman diver, Paola Espinosa, who won a bronze at the 2008 Summer Beijing Olympics and a silver at the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. Paola affectionately refers to Ma Jing as her Chinese mother. In 2012, Ma Jin received the Orden Mexicana del Aguía Azteca, the highest recognition given by the Mexican government to foreign citizens. I am proud to be Chinese and to help Mexico with the knowledge I learned in my country, said Ma Jing. Ma Jing is Chinese, but she is respected and loved by her Mexican diving team and the people of Mexico. Ma Jing might be Chinese, but she is also an honorary Mexican. Thank you for listening to another Chicana Chicano Sports History segment. That will wrap up the podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sports as a Weapon podcast. (laughs) 